You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Today, we're going to have a great show for you. We're going to talk about the 12 forgotten principles of public health. Now, we've all been going through the COVID-19 pandemic for about a year now, and I've made some observations. Uh, I've also learned a lot just based on experience, and enough time has passed that I think it's time for us to start having an honest conversation about what's happening in our society, not just in healthcare, but in general. We've got cancel culture going on. We've got politics infecting our healthcare system, and we've got politicians and government bureaucrats getting in between doctors and the patients. And a year into this COVID-19 pandemic, and we're still not really responding to this pandemic according to the science. Uh, It seems to be more political and more driven by special interests that have aligned themselves with government. And I want to start talking about a way to claw back our country, a way to come together. And uh, I know the great Dan Bongino often talks about uh, the sociology experiment where uh, the first person gets up dancing uh, at a park, somebody's playing music, and somebody will get up dancing and everybody kind of watches. And then it's the second person that gets up dancing that kind of convinces everybody else to get up and begin to dance. And Dan Bongino is always talking about getting that second person to dance. Well, I've been thinking a lot about that as it relates to healthcare, and we're going to need some people to start dancing. I often talk about uh, with my family and with my friends how we've gotten to our place in our society where we're afraid to push back and say that there are only two genders when we hear somebody say there are 112 genders out there. If somebody were to even ask you your opinion, we would all have a second thought about should I actually suggest that there are only two genders when, of course, scientifically there are, or do I risk being canceled from my job and from my social clubs and from my social circles? And we've gotten to this place where we're just so intolerant of other people's opinions that it's become dangerous. And this all became very clear to me. I was on call at one of the hospitals that I work uh, the other night, and I had a patient come in with uh, an injury, and so I had to go to the hospital and operate on the weekend. And, uh, of course, I went and I got ready to go to the hospital, and the first thing I had to do was look for my mask, uh, make sure that I had it on me so that when I got to the hospital, I could go to the side door. Of course, we don't go in the front door anymore. We all filter through the side door, and there's a nice young lady sitting there, uh, and she is um, sitting there with a thermometer, and she uses uh, a very cheap uh, drugstore-bought thermometer that is notoriously inaccurate. And when doctors look at those things, we know that they're they're really um, not very valuable. Uh, meaning, when I tell you I'm not sick, that little thermometer is not going to show you anything. Um, but anyway, I, I, I ritually went in. I stood on the little circle they have for me. 
Of course, I have my mask on, which is utterly ridiculous. And all of you doctors out there know it's ridiculous. Uh, These cloth masks being worn the way we're wearing them, we know this has absolutely nothing to do with the transmission of influenza-like illnesses. But so many of us have just been beaten down, and we don't want to fight anymore. We don't want to offend anymore, and we certainly don't want to be canceled by suggesting that masks may be ineffective. And I do it, too. And so we take the mask out. We put it on. She comes up. She does the little testing on my forehead. And, uh, of course, I pass because I'm not sick, and I can tell her that. Um, I go in with my cloth mask uh, into the locker room. I change into my scrubs. Um, I've got my little sticker on my badge to let everybody know that uh, I've been checked. And I get into the uh, operating room, and there's just this... uh, Change in the way we do things. So I used to be able to go get my hat, my boots, my mask, myself. It was out there on a stand. This is the way all hospital surgery centers work. But due to the pandemic, uh, what we call PP&E, so all these boots, masks, and hats are in limited supply. So I have to keep my mask on. I have to go in and wander around uh, looking for all the equipment that I need. Um And I eventually get near my operating room, and there's an anesthesiologist there who I don't know for sure his politics, but I've known him for a very long time um, professionally. You know, I see him when we're in the operating room, and I don't really get the feeling that he and I see eye to eye on worldviews or even medical views, but we're usually cordial to each other. And the first thing he asked me is, did you get your vaccine? And I looked at him with a wry smile, and I said, you know I didn't. And he said, why not? And I said, why would I take an experimental vaccine for a disease that has absolutely no chance of hurting me? And he retorts right back, well, it doesn't have no chance of hurting you. And I said, no, you're right. It doesn't have no chance, but it's pretty low. Like, I got in my car, and I drove here, uh, and, uh, you know, I took the risk of getting in a car accident. Um, You know, I never have had anybody question whether I'm wearing a mask or, or, um, you know, make sure that I have my influenza vaccine and, you know, the flu virus can be dangerous. Uh, There's just a level of of intensity with COVID that has no basis in science and, in my opinion, at this point, is purely political. And... uh, Anyway, I'm continuing this conversation with this anesthesiologist, and he and I are kind of going back and forth. And, of course, he, he's gotten his second uh, vaccine. I refuse to get this experimental vaccine. I have not even seen uh, the, the literature on it because it's not available, at least not to my knowledge. I know that they uh, cut some corners like human trials and things like that. And I know historically that it takes five to ten years to know Uh, if a vaccine is safe or not. And this is a new type of vaccine. It's what we call an mRNA vaccine. So it goes into your cells uh, and causes your cells to produce proteins that are exhibited on your normal cells that appear to be the virus. And this is supposed to boost your immune system. And without getting too much into virology, uh, there are a lot of unknown questions. And so when I look at this survival rate that's posted on the CDC's website that's similar to a typical flu uh, that's, uh, you know, greater than 99.5% survival, even if I were to get sick, um, 
I just find it I, I, I'm hard pressed to want to take this vaccine and I kind of started thinking about it and I said okay you went and got your second vaccine and, and you're mocking me he was mocking me at this point and I asked him were you aware that the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet the number one and two medical journals on planet earth were caught publishing fake phony data suggesting that hydroxychloroquine was dangerous because they didn't want us to use hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19. And my opinion is that they didn't want us to use it because it was effective. There are other reasons out there, and it doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet did publish fake phony studies on hydroxychloroquine for whatever reason, and they had to retract the studies two weeks later when they were caught using uh, fake data. They couldn't produce the data, and in fact, they made this whole thing up. And I asked the question, like, wait a second, the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet, for anybody who's published scientific research, they know how difficult it is to get papers past the peer review process. It's a very rigorous, time-consuming process. You have to present data. You have to get it through what we call peer review. So you have to have other educated people reading these studies and and checking the references and making sure that everything is legit uh, before before it gets published. And when you have a journal like the New England Journal or the Lancet, their peer review process is the most rigorous. So in my estimation, there's absolutely no way that these fake phony studies on hydroxychloroquine could have possibly gotten through without the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, knowing it. And this begs another question, like, wait a second. Why did you lie about this? What is going on here? And as a reasonably intelligent person, I then asked the question, what else are you lying to me about? Now, this anesthesiologist, present, I presented him with this information, and he, his immediate response was, no, 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 that, that is not true. The New England Journal of Medicine, the Lancet, did not do that. So, of course, I pulled it up on my phone, and I showed him the original articles, and then I showed him the retractions, and he was completely unaware of it. Now, let me, let, let's think about that for a second. <clears throat> this particular doctor is an anesthesiologist, meaning his job is breathing, you know, uh, we got this pandemic that, you know, affects breathing, and there's information published in the number one and number two medical journals. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, uh, as part of uh, a community of people whose job it is to protect my patients, I research things that come up because that's what a doctor does. If I'm going to do an orthopedic surgery uh, procedure on a patient, I make sure I keep up to date on the literature. I make sure things are not different. Uh, you know, things change all the time. So something that I'm used to doing may change. And that's happened many times in my career. And the way I keep apprised of these things is I reference medical journals, textbooks, uh, lectures. Uh, I go to uh, CME classes and things of that nature. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you got this this anesthesiologist who's completely unaware of these fake phony studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, again, the number one and two medical journals on planet Earth, and his job is helping people breathe. Now, I'm not beating up on this person a whole lot. He's actually fairly typical in our healthcare system. 
uh, it's one of the reasons that I've always been an advocate for free market medicine. Uh, one of the number one issues I have learned is all of the white coats are not the same, and I throw myself in there. I am not perfect. I don't know everything about everything, and I can tell you for a fact I have had patients that have seen me over the years that have been dissatisfied with my analysis, and they have been free to go elsewhere and get other opinions and other treatments. And that's how the system should work. Uh, but you, you, you have this situation where politics has infected our healthcare system. Many of us are going along with with what's happening. So we're going along with these mask mandates. We're going along with social distancing, which actually I that that is not something that I've changed. I mean, as a medical doctor and somebody who's been familiar with communicable diseases, I've always been sort of weird about uh, washing my hands and hand sanitizer. Anybody who knows me will tell you he's a little bit weird with the hand sanitizer, and I wash my hands uh, a little too much maybe. But uh, I do think that basic hygiene has been effective, but these lockdowns absolutely have not been. And in my estimation and others, it's not just my opinion, uh, we have done more harm than good with the way we're handling it. And the thing that's scaring me is that we don't really seem to be shifting course. We're a year into this. We know that this COVID uh, disease has a mortality rate that is similar to uh, other flu pandemics that we've had in the past. We know who the vulnerable people are, uh, the older folks in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions that have a thousand times greater mortality than younger people. And yet we're keeping our kids out of school. And we've basically shut down our, our health care uh, because we're chasing what? I mean, I have my opinions about what we're chasing. I think it's politics. I think there are special interests that have a financial interest in how we manage COVID-19. And I've demonstrated on this show the relationship between government and our hospital systems and how we spend our resources. I mean, let's just look at the COVID relief bill, uh, $1.9 trillion dollars. I mean, we have politicians that I would argue, and this is my personal politics, but it's a fact. We have politicians that are spending us into oblivion. Year after year after year, we're running trillion-dollar deficits, and it used to make people like me nauseous. Well, now we're passing almost $3 trillion or $2 trillion, $3 trillion COVID relief packages because we're basing it on a pandemic that the powers that be have gone out of their way to terrify everybody in the world and to set up a series of behaviors that help further this narrative. And I'm thinking to myself, we need to change. And I would like to take a little trip down memory lane. If you remember back in the beginning of 2020, right at the end of 2019 into 2020, people started hearing about a pandemic in China and the World Health Organization which we correctly, in my opinion, pulled out of under President Trump. Sadly, we're back in this organization uh, that is a purely political organization. It's a branch of the United Nations, and they have literally been all over the map with their recommendations. They uh, tweeted out uh, back in early 2020 that there was uh, no evidence of human-to-human transfer. 
Now, this was at a time when none of us really knew what was going on with the COVID-19 virus. And although I was familiar with coronavirus, I was not familiar with what they were calling the novel coronavirus. And so I thought to myself, why would you make a statement like no human to human transfer? Uh, It was irresponsible. Uh, We were told by the Royal College of London that the mortality rate of COVID-19 was expected to be 3.4%. Now, the second I heard this, I thought to myself, what are you guys trying to do? Are you trying to freak the entire planet out? And my answer to that now is, yes, that's exactly what we were trying to do. Because it was obvious even then that there was not a 3.4% mortality. They were taking the only the people that were very sick in the hospital that were known to be sick and then figuring out the number of people that died, and then they were calculating the mortality rate from those folks. They were ignoring the fact that we knew that there were lots of people out in the community who were not sick or who were so minimally sick that they weren't at the hospital that were not being counted in the number. And, of course, that mortality rate came down quickly uh, to something that we are more used to uh, with, uh, uh, I want to say it's point. 0.13% now, and that's similar to other diseases, flus, and things like that that we've seen in the past. Now, at the time that the numbers came down, they had already achieved their goals of implementing lockdown and behavioral changes in society. And listen, I've always been talking on this show about I don't want to get bogged down in arguing about what could be or what I think might be. And let's just talk about the facts and have open conversation. So, You know, it's my opinion that this was done purposely for a variety of different reasons. Uh, Again, I think it had to do with politics, and you can use your own judgment as to that. I also think that there's financial interest involved as we uh, look at how the hydroxychloroquine saga rolled out. I was just doing a podcast with uh, Congressman Louis Gohmert and Congressman Paul Kosar uh, talking about covid and uh, hydroxychloroquine. And back in early 2020, when I became aware that there was a coronavirus uh, pandemic spreading around the globe, I started researching and preparing to protect myself, to protect my clinic, to protect my staff. And it became obvious early on that hydroxychloroquine was probably a safe, effective means to protect yourself from COVID-19. I mean, listen, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm familiar with hydroxychloroquine. It's used in the scope of my practice. Um, I'm well aware that it's billions of doses have been given over its 65-year history of FDA approval to people for prophylaxis against malaria. I've since done enough research to see that in all the 65-year history of FDA approval of hydroxychloroquine, there's not one documented case of somebody dying of cardiac complications at the doses that we would give to treat coronavirus. I mean, that is just unfathomable information to me in terms of safety. And yet you have the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet coming out with these articles suddenly published in months, which is ridiculous on the face of it. Then the size and scope of these studies that they supposedly were presenting, which is, by the way, the reason they got caught, because people like me looked at it and said, this is stupid. There's obviously no way this is true. Uh, They come out with these studies that say hydroxychloroquine is ineffective. Now, why would they do that? I mean, 
I'm a rational person. I'm an intelligent person, and I'm a curious person. And also, I had a responsibility here to protect my practice, my patients, my family, and myself from this pandemic. And I'm saying to myself, why in the world would the number one and two journals on the face of the earth, medical journals, come out with these studies suggesting that hydroxychloroquine is dangerous? Well... We can look back now. We can see the company Gilead that produces a competitive drug called Rendesmavir, $3,120 for a five-day dose. This company uh, stock dropped. Gilead stock dropped $21 billion. That's billion with a B, dollars, after President Trump suggested that hydroxychloroquine may be an effective treatment for Coronavirus. Now, President Trump is not a physician, uh, but he is a reasonably intelligent guy in my estimation. Again, that's my opinion. He obviously didn't come up with that on his own. He had advisors, medical advisors that were presenting information to him. Maybe he was reading it on his own. I mean, this information was ready, readily available to anybody who wanted to read it. And that's what I did. And I remember when he said it and I said to myself, yeah, that's the information that I'm getting to from available literature already out there published in medical journals and this 65 year history. In fact, I came across a very interesting study uh, that was published from the NIH in 2005 regarding SARS-CoV-1. That's the coronavirus that uh, came out in in uh, another epidemic years back. And Anthony Fauci was the head of the NIH at the time that this paper was published. And I thought it was kind of weird SARS-CoV-2 is 78% the same as SARS-CoV-1. So just so you understand, we've got a coronavirus from back in the early 2000s that's causing a pandemic. Then we get another coronavirus in 2019-2020 that's 78% the same. Fauci knows that hydroxychloroquine is effective treatment for SARS-CoV-1 and yet not a peep about it for SARS-CoV-2. And then you get Trump coming along and saying that it might be effective, which is what I determined from my educated investigation of the available literature. And he's ridiculed and pilloried. And then we get these fake phony studies in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. And I'm saying to myself, what is going on here? Because this is not normal behavior. Now, When these papers came out in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, it gave a predicate for the FDA to revoke the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. The World Health Organization used this information to stop all studies on hydroxychloroquine. Hospital systems, which we've demonstrated on this show many times, are very politically connected to local politicians and they're largely controlled by Medicare and Medicaid. Hospital systems used this, these studies, these fake phony studies in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet as a predicate to ban the use of hydroxychloroquine. So you get these doctors, many of whom are just like this anesthesiologist who wants to know if I got my vaccine, are being told by the administration of the hospitals that they work at that you can't use hydroxychloroquine. They're being told that it doesn't work. They're being told that it's cardiotoxic. And a lot of these doctors are buying it hook, line, and sinker. 
And I'm just stunned that they don't realize that the studies eventually got retracted. And I'm even more stunned that on the heels of these studies being retracted because they lied about it, that they don't then have other questions like, wait a second, why would you lie about one of the safest drugs we've ever had, hydroxychloroquine? Why would you do that? And then you have to start looking at other reasons like I did. Well, that Gilead stock dropped $21 billion. It seems reasonable to me that that was an impetus. Um, I, you know, I, I, we've seen that um, many of the members of the NIH and Fauci himself uh, have uh, financial ties to Gilead. And again, this show is not about that because I don't want to get bogged down in whether or not somebody believes what I'm saying or whatever. The facts of the matter is they did publish fake phony studies. They did get retracted. I think it's reasonable for people to ask why. And um, if you're lying about hydroxychloroquine, then the next question is, what else are you lying about? Well, I'm here to tell you they're lying about all kinds of stuff. Uh, they were lying about uh, the testing. So we've i've pointed out for the last year how they conflated antibody tests with pcr tests how they've been um amplifying pcr tests so they take people who have uh for example you get somebody whose body sees a coronavirus they the body fights off that coronavirus they never get sick but then they get tested which again we're testing people who aren't even sick and uh, they amplify these little strands of of virus that never made them sick uh, enough to be able to detect it, and then they say, okay, we got another case, even though that person never got sick. We also know that they made changes. The, the uh, AMA, American Medical Association, which uh, I've talked about many times, the American Medical Association is a political body. It gets $100 uh, million dollars a year from the federal government, at least last time I checked. It was $100 million a year to implement what we call the ICD-10 codes and the CPT codes. So these are the codes that we use to uh, to document diagnoses of disease, illness, and injury and procedures that we do to treat them. Um, they get $100 million to implement that, that tool. And it's the way insurance companies uh, do their billing, or I should say deny payment. Um, they added a special code for COVID, the AMA did, so that if you diagnosed COVID with very, very loose uh, um, parameters, so the the code actually said it didn't have to be the primary diagnosis, you didn't actually have to have a positive test, you could just kind of have a suspicion, uh, you... Uh, it didn't even have to have to be the major illness, and that's why we've seen people with gunshot wounds to the head end up getting termed as uh, COVID deaths. Uh, and what they got in return was 100% reimbursement at a very high rate. At some point, I saw $72,000 for an admission. And what I saw during that time were patients going to the hospital, getting admitted for a day, and then being released the next day. And it was almost like there was a concerted effort to try and make as many COVID diagnoses as possible and and get as many admissions as possible. And in my opinion, for political reasons to further the narrative that we were under this horrible t pandemic and to terrify people into going along with things like uh, a $2.9 trillion COVID relief bill with no pushback because we're all f terrified. Now, 
I'm here to tell you I've been to the hospital and I've been consulted with patients who had COVID negative tests, meaning we tested them for COVID and yet their primary diagnosis was COVID. Now, I've seen this with my own eyes, so I know that this is happening. It's been reported many times. And again, I I don't want to get bogged down in the politics of these things. I just want to talk about what is happening. So we get to a stage in this disease where uh, I want to I can't remember the exact date, but it was it was after the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet uh, retracted their fake phony studies. So it's probably uh, in July, June or July sometime. America's frontline doctors, led by Dr. Simone Gold, went to Washington, D.C. to try and draw attention to available research on hydroxychloroquine and COVID in general and to let people know that despite what they were hearing on the media, uh, that school-aged children were largely unaffected, that we didn't have to really worry about our kids, uh, that the vulnerable people were people in their 70s and 80s, almost uh, all of them with comorbid conditions. So even healthy 70, 80-year-olds are not uh, nearly as vulnerable as those who have other illnesses. Uh, And that hydroxychloroquine was a seemingly effective treatment. Hydroxychloroquine along with zinc. Uh, We now know ivermectin uh, is another uh, drug that is good used early in the disease. We went to D.C. and we had 18 million. We basically just conducted a like a scientific conference and we we posted it on Facebook and we had 18 million live Facebook viewers, 18 million. So that means we were giving information that people wanted to hear. Um, and it wasn't even our information. It wasn't like we rushed through a quick study on rendesmavir and then sold it to every hospital in America, you know, like like the government did with with uh, rendesmavir. Uh, it was a medicine that has been FDA approved for 65 years with one of the safest profiles ever. And I wasn't presenting and America's frontline doctors weren't presenting new research. We were just saying, look what is available. Look what's already been out there. And what did we get for that? Facebook banned us with 18 million live Facebook viewers. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more when we come back from this break. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to me on America's Web Radio. We'll be back in just a minute. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to... The Doctor's Lounge, you're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. We were just talking about America's frontline doctors and our conference that we were putting on in Washington, D.C. to alert the world 
that there was a safe and effective drug in hydroxychloroquine and some other facts about the coronavirus pandemic that was not being shared by the media and, in my opinion, was being thwarted by the media who wanted to continue red line hysterical um, terrorizing of the American people in the world. And we had 18 million live Facebook uh, viewers as we were giving this information and we were censored by Facebook, by Twitter, by all these social media platforms. And basically all of our videos that we posted were removed from the internet. And there was this concerted effort uh, to prevent us from sharing this information. Now, when the CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai, was confronted with why they censored America's frontline doctors, his statement was, well, they are saying dangerous things that are against the World Health Organization and the CDC. But what he left out of that statement was that the World Health Organization and CDC's recommendations were based on fake, phony studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine in Lancet. Now, Dr. Simone Gold eventually lost her job for simply talking openly about a very safe 65-year FDA-approved medication. And the rest of us were sent uh, into fear that we would be canceled, that our businesses would be shut down, that we would be deplatformed, uh, that we'd be, we would be placed on no-fly uh, restrictions and basically targeted for our medical views. And this is really where I'm at today. I admit that I have every action, every statement I've made, I've always done a calculation about how much risk am I taking at being prevented from being a doctor, from being attacked and pilloried. And I saw something on Twitter where she was um, labeled by Twitter. Dr. Simone Gold was labeled by Twitter as a known spreader of misinformation. And it just really got my goat. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, um, it turns out, in hindsight, she was telling the truth 100%, as we all were. In fact, now that the election's over and all kinds of things have happened, it looks like the vaccine's being rolled out and you know we're getting close to people being forced to take an experimental vaccine. Uh, the drugs have been sold, rendesmivir. It looks like everything that needed to happen has kind of been taking place. And so now we're starting to see articles in medical journals going, well, it looks like hydroxychloroquine may be effective. Yeah, that's what we've been telling you for the whole time. And I'm wondering, is Twitter going to label the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet as known spreaders of misinformation? Because that's what they are. I mean, that's a fact. Dr. Simone Gold's being labeled as a known spreader of misinformation by Twitter. But what misinformation has she spread? Every single thing that she has said has been 100% true. And, you know, we got the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet that published these fake phony studies, had to retract them, and it's like nobody cares. There's no, there's no investigation. How did this happen? I mean, as a sentient being, as an educated doctor, I mean, I've always known that politics influences our scientific research. I've always known that people misconstrue data and give you half-truths citing data. I've always known this to be the case, but it was news to me 
that the number one and two medical journals would be, I mean, I've said it before, and I mean, this again is my opinion, but they were on the take. There's no way I can I can imagine that fake phony studies of that magnitude could have gotten past the peer review process at these two journals without them being in on it. And I'm afraid as I, you know, we're a year or more into this, I'm afraid as I continue to go to the hospital, I continue to see uh, people being mistreated. I continue to see our medical system wasting resources with these mask mandates, uh, with um, all of the uh, things that we do uh, to carry on this narrative that we're somehow in the midst of this uh, deadly pandemic that's killing people left and right. And again, to be clear, because I know people are going to go on there and say, look at him. He's a known a purveyor of misinformation. I'm here to tell you, we did go through a pandemic, in my opinion. COVID-19 is a real virus, and it did kill people. There's no question about that. But what I'm telling you is we don't know what that number is because they've been lying about it for so long and making it so difficult for people like me to gather the data that I don't know what that number is. I know that the number they're giving us is not true, but I don't know how bad it is. But I can look at the the mortality rate that's posted on the the website of the CDC and I can say to myself well that looks pretty similar to other influenza like illnesses that we've seen in the past so why are we not treating it like that and more importantly I can see that if you pull the vulnerable people out the people in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions then we really have something that is really less than flu. Our school-aged children I want to say the last thing I read are five times less likely to be hurt by coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 virus, than they are from a typical influenza virus. Why is that not being spread all over the news? And why are my kids uh, being kept out of school, being kept away from their activities, being kept? My my daughter is a, a wonderful singer, and I'm just so proud of her. And she's talking to me about how she's going to sing with a mask on. And I'm just sitting here wondering, are we ever going to gain our courage and our sanity back to start asking questions and start demanding that we follow science and that we stop allowing politics and special interests to affect our lives in such a draconian and dramatic way. There was a woman who's part of the master's program in economics, I believe it was, at Johns Hopkins University, and she compiled statistics that were posted on the CDC website, and what she noted was that the overall death rate in 2020 uh, was not much different from 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016, 2015, going, I can't remember how far it went back, I want to say it's 2015 to 2014. She looked at just the statistics of how many people die total, the rate of death and what they die of. And what she noted was the overall deaths were about the same. But deaths from heart disease and cancer and influenza were disappeared. And so the rational person says to themselves, well, it seems to me that you're taking people that died of other things and just made them COVID deaths. That's what it looks like. Because if we really had a pandemic, you would still see a certain number of people dying of heart disease and cancer. It wouldn't plummet. Uh, and then you would see additional deaths from COVID, but that didn't happen. And so people like me, and so Johns Hopkins University published this in their newsletter, 
in January, I believe it was. Uh, and I people like me looked at it and went, well, that's good evidence that we're not in the middle of this deadly pandemic, that they keep trying to keep us locked down, keep our kids out of school, force us into mass. And so I started posting it on social media like other people did. And what do you suppose happened? Well, they retracted the study. And if you go and you read the retraction, and I've read it on this show before, the reason for the retraction wasn't the wasn't that the information was wrong. It was that people like me were using it irresponsibly. I'm thinking to myself, does that even make sense to you? Does that even make sense to you that we're now not allowed to see actual data in the public uh, because people use the data irresponsibly? Is that a world we live in? We now have gatekeepers that can decide what information we're allowed to have and what information we're not allowed to have. Now, to be fair, they've come back later and they've manipulated the numbers to basically say all the things that I pointed out are are not true, that actually the numbers have increased and everything. But let's just say I don't trust it that much. Uh, We've seen them do this uh, through this entire year, manipulating statistics. We saw... um, when the red states like uh, Georgia, Texas, and Florida were opening up and blue states like California and New York were shutting it down, the political agenda was to show that that the places that opened up were being irresponsible and the places that locked down and had mass mandates were being responsible. And so what did they do? They added deaths that occurred in April to the numbers in July to make it as appear as a spike. And I, some of you may remember they talked about the spike in Florida and Texas and Georgia. And uh, this went around all the news agencies, of course. It was reported dutifully in the same way, spike, 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 to where everybody went, man, we're having a spike in these places that are opening up and not implementing lockdown and they don't have masks and we're seeing a better result in places like California and in New York. And then what happens, John Solomon at Just the News and some others uh, found out that they took numbers of people who died in April and added them to the July numbers to make it appear as if there was a spike, but that somehow didn't really make it into the news. Once they had got the narrative out there that there was this spike, they're done. Let's just move on. So I, I know about these things because I have a perspective where I understand virology I understand uh, medicine. I understand epidemiology. I know what coronavirus is. I understand masks. I know about hydroxychloroquine and rendesmavir. And I understand all these things. And I had a vested interest in this. So I was following these numbers every day. In the beginning, I was counting up these patients myself, meaning I would go to uh, Italy, and I would go to South Korea on Worldometer, and I would actually look at the age of the patients and look at their comorbid conditions, the important things, and I could see for myself that the people who were dying were people in their 70s and 80s and comorbid condi- with comorbid conditions. And I thought to myself, this is amazing news. Why aren't they sharing it? And from there, it's just been a spiral downward. So now uh, we were banned from talking about hydroxychloroquine. We've been labeled as known spreaders of misinformation. Of course, the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, they're not labeled as known spreaders of misinformation, even though they are. Um, 
We've seen our hospital systems ban their doctors from prescribing hydroxychloroquine. We've seen doctors being targeted by their DEA agents in certain blue states uh, under threats of losing their medical license if they prescribe hydroxychloroquine. Um, We've seen our um, people at the FDA who knew that there was this concerted effort to prevent to prevent the use of hydroxychloroquine. They knew that this was going on, and they could have made hydroxychloroquine, again, an FDA-approved medicine for 65 years, one of the safest drug profiles around. They could have made this medication on use for COVID-19. They could have done that. I know for a fact I went all the way to the top, and this these people, they didn't do it. And why? Politics. They just were unwilling to do that. And so... Who knows how many people out there have suffered or died because they didn't have access to hydroxychloroquine. We know we still have doctors, some of them whose job it is to to do breathing for patients who are completely unaware that the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet published fake phony studies on hydroxychloroquine. And to me, this is all evidence of a broken healthcare system. And if we don't find people to stand up and dance... If we don't find people to have the courage to say masks don't work, not the way we're using them. I'm not going to hedge my bets. I mean, I see I see people out there that I respect. Um, I'm going to say Governor Kristi Noem is one of them. She was being confronted by a a journalist about masks and they were putting words in her mouth. You're saying masks don't work because they want to be able to get her on record as saying masks don't work. And um when she says masks don't work, then they can label her as a known spreader of misinformation by taking it out of context. I mean, this is the game that we're playing, but I don't care. Masks, the way we are using them, do not work. End of story. This wearing a mask to the front door of a restaurant while you sit at your table, then you take your mask off to eat, then you put your mask on to go to the bathroom, take it off to eat some more, then you leave, you put your mask on to leave, you're wearing anything on your face. There's no, there's no uh, regulation about what a mask even has to be. So people are literally wearing anything on their face because it's not about the mask preventing any disease. It's about the fact that you're wearing a mask. And I'm telling you that those masks, the way we are using them, are absolutely useless. Now, I've been studying mask literature now for probably close to 30 years, 28 years. Uh, it's you know part of my job, part of my life, and I've done this research. And there are studies out there that show that certain droplet sizes don't go as far, that um, you know, there are certain things that a mask may help with. So that's kind of my thing is like, is it possible a mask may help? Yes, that is possible. But there are no studies that show in vivo, meaning in actual situation, not a laboratory, that wearing masks prevents the spread of influenza-like illnesses, not even with an N95. And nobody is wearing an N95 properly and continuously and a fresh one every time. That's not happening. So I'm able to easily say with a clear conscience, masks, the way we're using them, are not working. And I'm you know, I'm going to be the first one to say it. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there are other people out there who are saying it, but other people have to have the courage to at least ask the question. You know, I always thought it was kind of funny. They came out with this thing about masks. You know, masks don't protect you. 
they protect other people. And I'm thinking to myself, in the whole history of my 28 years of studying mass, never once did I see that rationale presented. Meaning, if I wear my mask, it's not protecting me, it's me protecting you. And I asked myself, why would they do that? Well, of course, if the mask was out per, about protecting me, I would make the personal decision, you know, my body, my life, I'm not going to wear a mask. And the powers that be simply couldn't have that. So they had to make it a mask is about somebody else. That way, if you're not wearing a mask, you're being a bad person. That's why that's happening. And I want us to just start having open and honest conversations about about COVID, about science, about medicine in general. And as I was kind of going through my Twitter last week, I came across um, a Dr. Martin Kulldorff, and I apologize if I'm not saying that name right. He's at Martin Kulldorff. He's a professor at Harvard Medical School. It looks like he's in the virology department. Um, he wrote a really great article that I think everybody should read called The 12 Forgotten Principles of Public Health. And they're very important. And if you read them, you realize we're not really following them anymore. And his first number one is public health is about health is about all health outcomes, not just for a single disease like COVID-19. It is important to consider the harms from public health measures. And that's a really important concept. Um. I have seen in my own practice people with orthopedic issues that did not come to the hospital because they were so terrified of COVID, and now they have lifelong consequences of not going to the hospital. Lots of people have published uh, uh, data on cancer diagnoses that have been missed because patients didn't go and get their cancer screening, um, heart disease patients that suffered consequences of heart disease because they didn't get their procedures or their treatments. And so... Uh, you know, we're looking at our kids that have been out of school and uh, they, you know, what are the consequences of a kid being out of school for you? Now, thank God I live in Georgia. My kids, uh, my kids go to a private school and they've been mostly in school for a long time. They've at least had some interaction and they've been able to do activities with modifications that I don't agree with, but at least they're in school and seeing their friends are not completely isolated. I saw a woman on Twitter who presented to her young child, she looked like she was maybe 10 or 11, uh, you know, that there was a surprise and she put out all these, she did it in a very stylistic way to let her know that she was going to be able to go back to school in March one year later. And the girl broke down in tears because she had been tortured by this isolation for a year. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, she missed an entire year of school. She missed an entire year of interaction and normal development. What kind of long-term damage is that going to have? And are we going to allow this to continue? The second issue with public health is public health is about long-term rather than short-term Sorry, public health is about the long term rather than the short term. Uh, the COVID-19 lockdowns were designed to flatten the curve, right? The whole idea was that we were to flatten the curve. Um, and that was what that meant was we were going to prevent uh, so many people from getting sick at one time 
that they wouldn't overwhelm the system. And that never happened. We never had a situation. I know the media tried to portray it in certain areas, but really what they did was they took places that were always overwhelmed and tried to make it look at like it was unique. But at the end of the day, uh, most of our health care uh, um, was not overwhelmed. We actually saw that President Trump set up uh, uh, hospital ships to New York, that they set up special hospitals in um, in uh, I'm blank in the major part, Central Park in New York, and of course these went uh, basically unused uh, because we never had this need to flatten the curve. And if you look at Sweden, Sweden basically had um, they've done nothing, no lockdowns, no keeping us out of school. Uh, they didn't have any mask mandates, and their overall mortality is better than the United Kingdom, Spain, or Belgium. It's worse than Denmark, Norway, and Finland. And as a doctor looking at that, I simply say that they're all similar, that the lockdowns, masks, uh, and whatnot did not have any effect because uh, the United Kingdom, Spain, and Belgium all implemented mask mandates and lockdowns and kept their kids out of school. And so... um, there was no reason to do it there. And uh, so if we're going to be looking at this scientifically, we have to be willing to understand that we tried lockdowns and mask mandates and they are not effective. Um, And I should be able to talk about it. If somebody disagrees with me, that's great. But let's have an open debate about this stuff and let's not just cancel me because you don't like what I'm saying or you don't like the conclusions I'm drawing. That's how we move the ball forward and that's how we get better at what we're doing. Um, Number three, Public health is about everyone. It should not be used to shift the burden of disease from the affluent to the less affluent. Now, when I look at the way this pandemic rolled out, I was pretty well covered. I mean, my business stayed open. I was on a frontline doctor. Um, I actually had the means to ride this out if I needed to. Um, The way the government uh, allocated resources and aid actually benefited me, and I'm somebody who could have... Uh, handled this a lot better. And then I have my brother who's in a different business who is all but wiped out. Uh, This is ridiculous. Uh, Looking at the data, um, it was basically the young, healthy people, uh, the people who had white-collar jobs like journalists who could have worked for home, they were protected. But yet our older working-class people, the ones who were actually a little bit more vulnerable, they were the ones who were forced to go to work, if possible, in order to put meat on the table. So we need to remember these things when we're considering public health. The other thing to understand about public health is public health is global. Public health scientists need to consider the global impact of their recommendations. And we've seen that with the shutting down of the uh, infrastructure in first world countries, that food um, that was uh, transported to third world countries uh, was cut down. And uh, I'm looking here at a story uh, that was in the AP. Virus-linked hunger tied to 10,000 child deaths each month. This was published in July of 2020. And again, you know, I could go and I could look at a, a ton of these different stories to to demonstrate how the people that wanted to continue lockdowns and mask mandates and, and who still want to continue this stuff are doing it without considering uh, everybody. They like to show you the things that matter to them, but they don't show you the whole picture. And if we're going to be 
if we're going to be honest people, if we're going to try and consider the public health from a moral standpoint, then we need to consider everybody when we start making these uh, these monumental decisions about how we run our health care. Number five, sorry, number four, public health, actually number four, public health is global. So number five, let's go to number six. I lost number five. Number six, public health should focus on high-risk populations. For COVID-19, many standard public health measures were never used to protect high-risk older people, leading to unnecessary deaths. And we don't have to talk about um, Governor Cuomo in New York mandating that nursing homes accept elderly COVID-19 patients. This was not protecting our vulnerable. We're Not that I agree with the experimental vaccine, but the way these vaccines are being allocated, uh, we see a lot of the young, healthy people that are getting these vaccines. And there's just no real consideration for um, a risk assessment here. And the other thing is, this is the first time that we've ever treated the, the, the sick. I'm sorry, the healthy. You know, we're focused on the healthy. Things like quarantines are supposed to be quarantining the sick, not the healthy. Number seven, contact tracing and isolation is critically important for some infectious diseases, but it's futile and counterproductive for common infections such as influenza. Listen, anybody who is a medical doctor knows that contact tracing is ridiculous for something like COVID-19. The supermajority of people, we've known this since the beginning, the supermajority of people that are infected with COVID-19 are asymptomatic or so minimally symptomatic that they don't know they're sick. The asymptomatic spread is pretty low. And what we know about influenza-like illnesses is that regardless of what we do, there's no way to prevent it from spreading throughout the community until we achieve herd immunity. That is just a sad fact. Now, there's a, some argument we could make about flattening the curve, uh, you know, to prevent over, overwhelming our system. That's a reasonable thing, and I'm willing to talk about it. But these draconian lockdowns that we're continuing with are doing nothing to, to spread this uh, disease. And we're not even doing a strict quarantine. If you really want to implement uh, um, contact tracing, we're going to have to throw out the Bill of Rights uh, completely and, and avoid anybody's civil rights in order to mandate this uh, in particular. Um, listen, we've had a lot to talk about here um, you, you should go and look at this uh, this person um, at Martin Koldoff, professor of Harvard Medical School. Go to his Twitter is at Martin M A R T I N Koldorf. Sorry, K U L L D O R F. Uh, he's got a lot of great stuff on there, and I think every person should read his Twelve Forgotten Principles of Public Health. Start to educate yourselves. Have courage to ask questions. Don't let people shut you down. And we're going to continue to do it on this show so that we can have honest debate, honest scientific talk about health care and uh, never let something like this happen to this to us again. I appreciate you guys listening to me. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We'll see you next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.